Okay, well, let's uh, go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. We thank you, Father, for um, our church family. We thank you for our opportunity to study this afternoon and to understand the, the controversy that we are involved in and uh, how we can come out successfully. So we just thank you, Father, for showing us the way and being such a wonderful God and being ever-present. And this we pray in Jesus' name. So the presentation is really kind of entitled um, How the Controversy Began, but I was particularly doing a little bit of study last night in uh, Revelation 13, and I just kind of wanted to share this with you, that there's a certain phrase in the Greek there, kai endothe auto, meaning, and there was given him. And I want us to notice that in the, with the papacy, this phrase is repeated. Uh, so in Revelation 13, 5, um, the papacy was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. Where would it, who would be giving this to them? Satan himself. Because when you think about it, Rome never started anything, ultimately. You know, I mean, they, they didn't start the Roman Empire. It was given to them. You see what I'm saying? Uh, pagan religion. They didn't start pagan religion. They, it was given to them, Right? So all this stuff was, was given. They didn't have their own army. They were given an army. These armies of other nations wound up doing their bidding. All this stuff is given to them, right? And I just thought it was kind of interesting because it raises the question of who gave all this stuff to them. And ultimately the answer is, is Satan. But I, I wanted us to follow this, this phrase, given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemy. So if we say this is coming from the dragon, the dragon gave him his power to see it in great authority, and therefore it's the dragon who's given. So ultimately, when we hear the papacy speaking about being like God on earth, where are they getting these words again? The devil's putting these words in their mouth. Not like they don't have a choice, but they are expressing the very sentiments of Lucifer himself. Because you remember what Lucifer said to Jesus, if you just bow down to me, I will give you all the kingdoms of this world. Isn't that interesting? It's about giving, and, and uh, not in a good sense. But it's, uh, so, and power was given unto him to continue 42 months. Um, and it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, because given that spirit, given that same ideas, this is what Lucifer himself wants to do. Lucifer wants to kill the saints. Is that important for us to understand? Absolutely. So he's going to use whatever entities he can. Ultimately, this isn't an expression of Lucifer himself, is what we see through the papacy. And that's why I think this this phrase is important. And power was given unto him over all kindreds, tongues, and nations. Now, what's to me interesting is that this phrase is actually used with the second beast as well. But finishing this up, the first beast of papacy receives power from and is controlled by the spirit of the dragon or Satan. Is that right? Hence, the real ruler of this world would be Satan. Even, even if the whole world wanders after the beast, it's for the purpose of worshiping the dragon himself, right? Because it actually says that in Revelation 13. It says, uh, and they worship the dragon which gave power unto the beast. So that's how, that's how it happens. He, he gives power for the purpose of, ultimately, people worshiping him. You know, if you'll but bow to me, I'll give you the kingdoms of this world, you see? And so we, 
in the end of time, you'll probably be offered something. Right? You'll be offered positions, maybe money, maybe safety, if you just bow to and worship Lucifer. Right? It's going to be offered to every Seventh-day Adventist. You will be tempted. He will offer you these things. But you've got to refuse them, just like Christ. God alone is worthy of worship, right? Okay? We're going to have to have that same mentality. Use the scriptures. Realize that ahead of time, we're going to be offered things. Okay? Now, the papacy, unfortunately, bought into all this, right? They, they wound up conceding truth for political gain, right? So he, he, they were completely wound up being used by Satan. So while claiming to be the representative of Christ on earth, the papacy actually became the representative of Satan. Is that too strong of a statement? It it really isn't. They really are the representative of Satan. Okay. Now, in Revelation 13, 4, and they worshiped the dragon which gave power unto the beast, and they worshiped the beast, and saying, who's like unto the beast? Who's able to make war with him? Now, what's interesting is, who's like unto the beast? The question But this is in the context of chapters 12 and 13 of Revelation where the name Michael for Jesus is used, which is a question. Who's like unto God? Isn't that interesting? The answer to who's like unto God is is Jesus. That's what Michael means. And who's like unto the beast? Well, you know... I mean, Satan, the beast is like unto Satan. I mean, we could say it, but it's the same kind of question as Jesus named Michael. I just thought these were pretty interesting concepts in chapters 12 and 13. Um, so who's like unto God is what Jesus' name is in this context of this controversy. And the people worship the beast and ask, who's like unto the beast? Um, the other thing is that worship is obedience. If you obey the Ten Commandments, it's because you worship. Yeah, it'd be the only way you could keep the Ten Commandments. You you could not keep the Ten Commandments unless you were empowered by God to do it. And God's not going to empower you to worship the devil. God's only going to empower you to worship right. So if you've gained the power to keep the commandments, it's because you are worshiping the true God. So when people worship the beast, they are obeying The master, right, that's their God, ultimately, is the papacy, which really behind all of it is, yeah, they're really worshiping Satan, okay? Because they're obeying, really, um, something false there, right? Now, there was another question asked in that text. Who's who's able to make war with him? Isn't that interesting? There's two questions here. Who's like unto the beast, and who's able to make war with him? Now, it's interesting that the question is actually answered. Uh, who's, well, actually, this other question is answered, too. Who's, who's like unto the beast? How, do, how does Revelation 13 answer that question? There's another beast that makes a what? An image to the beast. Who's like unto the, who's like unto the papacy? Yeah, these apostate Protestant churches are going to be just like. And we read a statement the last time I was here that they're going to be just as oppressive. And so who's like unto the beast? Well, it's these apostate Protestants. It's all the people are going to wonder and worship the beast, right? They're like unto the beast. But here's another question. It is actually being answered. Yes, go ahead. I'm 
Okay, let's, let's go back and look at that. Let's see, verse 3, go back to, And I saw one of his heads as he was wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who's like unto the beast? And you're saying not so much in character, but that you kind of take these questions together. Who's able to make war with him? Oh, yeah, who's like unto the, who's as great as this beast power? And, I mean, I think it's a legitimate way of looking at it, and the answer is, what made him that way? The dragon gave him his power, seed, and great authority. He's able to be like this because, ultimately, Satan's propping him up to be this powerful. Now, prior to the papacy, who was the papacy propping up? Be all the pagan powers, you know, be pagan Rome and, all the ones before that, right? He'd always basically used pagan powers. Doesn't mean he wasn't corrupting Israel from within, but it's you know it's a good question. Who's like unto the beast? Um, who's able to make war with him? Could be understood as a question that belongs together. All I did is take them separately and recognize that Michael means who's like unto God, because you're looking at two different characteristics, you know people who are like the beast and people in Jesus who's just like the father. And so the beast is just like his father, which would be Lucifer, Satan himself. I mean, it sounds awfully strong, but when you just take the text, it seems to actually be saying this. You can't can't get away from the dragon here. And as far as um, who's able to make war with him, I think the question is answered in Revelation 12, 17, and the dragon was wroth with the woman, the true church, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, those living the end of time, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So if I didn't look at Revelation 15, 2, and I was just looking at 12, 17, who's able to make war with him? The people who actually keep the commandments and have the testimony of Jesus Christ, which is the spirit of prophecy. I mean, nobody else is even able to overcome him. They're already conquered by him, Right? We're actually at war with the dragon. you imagine that? We as a people are at war with the dragon who's already deceived the papacy. He's already deceived these apostate Protestants. And they're like him, right? The people who are really at war, the people who actually are on the other side of the, of the line of, of battle, is people who keep the commandments and have the testimony of Jesus Christ which is the spirit of prophecy. If we didn't have either one of those two things, where are we? We're probably over in Satan's camp, right? Or close to it. Now, chapter 15, verse 2 is very interesting. And I saw as it were a sea of glass mingled with fire, and then that had what? They got the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark, over the number of his name, and they stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. So, the question is, who's able to make war with him is God's people. Amen. And this verse particularly is focused on the 144,000. But this is a really an end-time verse. So God's people who refuse to take the mark of the beast and worship his image or worship the beast, but choose to keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ or the faith of Jesus, right? Revelation 14, 12. They're the only ones who are in this battle that come out victorious. 
That's, that's the only solution we have. How do you come out not being defeated by Satan in this spiritual war? Well, you know, so when Christians say, oh, you don't have to keep the commandments. Wow, how well are they going to come out in this war? Uh, there wasn't a prophet after John. Actually, that's, they put themselves in such a weak position to fight this battle. How much stronger are you because you have a knowledge of keeping the commandments and having the spirit of prophecy? Are you stronger? Amen. Infinitely stronger in fighting this battle. We really are at a war. And we're infinitely stronger by having this. This is what it's all over. Okay? Now, this is interesting. It doesn't so much come out in the... Uh, or in the English here, but, and I beheld another beast coming out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. So I want to talk a little bit about the second beast. Uh, prophecy represents Protestantism as having lamb-like horns, but speaking like a... Okay, so here's the dragon again. So the dragon... Yes? I mean, it's a great question. I would almost say we're the only Protestants left in that sense. That in the truest sense, Protestantism is protesting the heirs of Rome, believing in the Bible and the Bible only, right? Okay. Uh, most of Protestantism, I don't know if they even say Protestantism much anymore, as much as evangelical or, you know, Pentecostal or... Huh? Well, there's the Dominionists, but I mean... Most of these churches are, I don't know if they'd even call themselves Protestant. Most of them don't even use the term much. But in, a, in an application, it would say, are you Catholic, Protestant, or Jewish? Or, yeah. Right, that's true, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's a great question. Yeah, it's, it's not that they're not Protestant. They're apostate Protestants. Okay. As having lamb-like horns, but speaking as a dragon. So we saw that the papacy received everything from the dragon, ultimately. And that's ultimately we're going to see here, too. But at this point, it's only saying that these apostate churches are speaking like a dragon. But where would they get that speech? From the dragon himself, ultimately. Already, we're beginning to hear the voice of the dragon. And she wrote this in 1889. So in 1889, these apostate churches were already beginning to speak like a dragon. Notice this next sentence. There is a what? It's a satanic force. So there's a satanic force behind it. So ultimately, when we talk about end time events, Satan's behind every bit of this, right? These people are just mostly pawns. So they're ultimately not our enemy. Our enemy is really Satan. Uh, we don't know who are the true and faithful in these other churches, but we're trying to call them out, Amen. okay? And so ultimately, we really need to pin this on who really ultimately is behind this. There is a satanic force propelling the Sunday movement that it is concealed. So the devil's trying to get these Protestants to work uh, secretly. The National Reform Movement that the world and the church have linked hands to bring about will manifest the same oppression, haughtiness, arrogance, and intolerance which have prevailed in past ages. The powers of human councils then assume the prerogatives of deity, which is this context is basically saying this is what the Protestants are going to do too, crushing under their despotic will liberty of conscience and the right of individual responsibility. I want to get to that in a little bit. And imprisonment, exile, and death fall for all who oppose their dictates. So she writes this in 1889. 
This spirit is all, this satanic force is already into these uh, Protestant churches. But part of Satan's uh, plan is not only to trample upon the, the rights of conscience and the commandments, but the right of individual responsibility. And this is ultimately what the third angel's message is about, right? We're watching Satan behind all of Catholicism, all of these apostate churches. And the third angel's message says, if any man worship the beast, what we're ultimately saying, you can't just go with the flow. There's no excuse, well, just because you're Methodist, you're just good to the Methodist church says. If any man worship the beast, you have individual accountability. Ultimately, when it gets right down to the end and we're given this message with full force, we're really appealing to the individual himself. You personally have to make a decision not to worship the beast or take his image, right? Or take his mark. Um, and, there, and, and then the penalty is per individual. I found this interesting. Um, these are referring to the second beast. Um, these are, these are, there are seven action words about this second beast. Uh, he exercises all the power of the first beast. He causes all to worship the first beast. He doeth great wonders. But let me ask you a question. Who's doing the great wonders? Satan. See, so, so, as I look at every one of these action words, Satan ultimately is behind every one of this. But this isn't the Catholics. This is the Protestants. So ultimately, we see the devil behind everything here to move the world to worship him. Ultimately, that's what he's after. He doesn't ultimately want people to worship the Pope. He really wants them to worship him. So, he maketh fire come down out of heaven. We know that's associated not just with the second beast, but Satan himself. He deceiveth them that dwell on the earth. It's in reference to the second beast, but who's, do, who's doing it? Satan himself is doing it. He giveth life unto the image of the beast. We know that the, our Congress will pass it and will give life unto the image of the beast and legislatively pass a religious law, but ultimately Satan's behind it. He causeth all to receive the mark of the beast. Satan's behind every one of these seven strong action verbs. Okay? Now, this is how the Bible describes Satan in the end. I mean, I know there's going to be another thousand years, and during the thousand years, he's going to have to contemplate all that he's done. And so what we see in chapter 13, it's all about the dragon, ultimately. He's the one that gives power to the first beast. He's the one that gets the second to speak and do all these seven action words, right? It's all about Lucifer. In the very end, he's trying to get the whole world to worship the beast, which ultimately is worshiping him, the dragon. Okay? The question is, how did all this start? I mean, at one time, Lucifer was an innocent cherubim, right? So, here we go. The war didn't start here. It started in heaven. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. Dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not. Neither was there a place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So, of the over 100 names given to Jesus in the Bible, John was inspired to use the word Michael. The war is between Michael and his angels and the dragon and his angels. 
So if I were to try to zero in and say, okay, what is the war over? Okay, it's over worship, I agree with you. But the name Michael means, who's like unto God? What is Lucifer at war against here? He's actually specifically at war with Jesus. And in what way? He's in war with the concept or the idea that Jesus is just like the Father. Okay? So Satan's at war with the whole idea that Jesus is equally divine as the Father. That Jesus is just like the Father. But isn't this how, by knocking Jesus down, how he kind of... Isn't that what happens in our world? Um, People often rise by putting others down. And so Lucifer ultimately wanted to get into the counsels of God. If Jesus is there, I should be there. Okay? So this is how the controversy, as much as it's a mystery, we know that it's specifically against Christ and it's specifically against fighting against the concept that Jesus is the same as the Father or as, as equal in divinity as the Father. Okay? That's how much we would know from that. And the dragon was wroth with the woman, went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God, have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So a war that starts in heaven against Christ, as Michael, is now being carried out on planet Earth, starts in heaven, but it comes down here, and he, now he's at war with, with people obeying Jesus, right? So he's against Christ first and foremost, and he's against, against anyone who would make their allegiance to Christ. Yeah. And that's, what, that's the war we're in. If you follow Jesus, the devil's at wrath at you, mm-hmm. right? If you just do your own thing, he's fine. fine. They're, they're no danger to me. They're, they're on my side. But as soon as you make your decision to follow Christ, he'll use everything he can to discourage you, right? To get you off the beam. But this is why you need Christ every day. Because, friends, this is a real war. Okay? And we just got finite minds. We may get off the path and not even realize it. Jesus' parents lost him for a few days because they took their eyes off him, right, when he was a child. It took him three days to find him. You know, that story's there for us. Okay? Any thoughts or no? So, Michael, who's like unto God? Uh, who's the one just like the Father? And he answers Jesus. This is why he sits in the councils with the Father. Jesus says, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Okay? God hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son, who being the brightness of his glory, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. So Jesus is fully divine, upholds all the things by the word of his power. Jesus and the Father are an absolute perfect harmony. Okay? And you'd wonder, why would Lucifer ever be opposed to this? Right? That's, that's part of the mystery. But as we read some of these statements... The sovereign of the universe was not alone in his work of beneficence. He had an associate, a co-worker with who, who could appreciate his purposes, who could share his joy in giving happiness to created beings. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
The same was in the beginning with God, John 1, 1 and 2. Christ, the Word, the only begotten of God, was one with the Eternal Father, one in nature, in character, in purpose, the only being that could enter into all the counsels and purposes of God. And ultimately, this is what Lucifer would be jealous of. He was not able to sit in the councils because Jesus was the only one who could, and the reason he could is because he's fully divine. They're in full agreement. Both are absolute perfection of character and everything. Okay? Yet Michael, the archangel, the highest messenger of the character of the Father and commander of angels, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. Now, a railing accusation means a slanderous judgment. So this divine character does not slander anyone, not even Satan. So when they're disputing, when Michael and Satan are disputing over the body of Jesus, Jesus does not give a railing accusation. Did I say something wrong? Oh, I meant Moses, right. So when they're fighting over the body of Moses, Michael, because of his divine nature, no railing accusation, not even against Lucifer, even though he's already taken a third of the angels. I mean, if anybody would have a reason to complain, it would be God. But the divine character says, I don't even give a slanderous judgment towards Lucifer, even though he is the slanderer. You see, see this, this statement, just the fact that Lucifer's a slanderer would be reason why Lucifer could not sit in the councils of God. Right? You could not sit in the council of God unless you had the character of God. And Lucifer did not have the character of God. Okay? Which is why he couldn't, and he wasn't divine. Okay? Uh, there's over 100 titles or names given to Jesus in the Bible. Uh, we talked about this already, the name Michael, Revelation 12.9. Lucifer's arguing that Jesus is not just like the Father, but he is. Uh, he would argue that Jesus is not equal to the Father in divinity, but he is. Therefore, in Luciferian circles, they teach that Lucifer is the brother of Jesus and that he is equal to the Son of God. So that's what's being taught in Luciferian circles. But that's the big lie, right? That he's equal to Jesus. Not to quote anything here, but anyway, the great controversy. So listen to these statements um, throughout great controversy in these pages. Satan, ambitious to exalt himself and unwilling to submit to the authority of Jesus. You notice the emphasis? Not the authority of the Father, but the authority of Jesus. Was insinuating against the government of God. So by being against Jesus' authority, he was actually insinuating the Father did something wrong too, right? They rebelled against the authority of who? It's actually the authority of the Son. I mean, how far would they get rebelling against the authority of the Father? I don't think I don't think that it got very far, but somehow he figured out how he could rebel against the authority of the Son, which a third of the angels wound up listening to this. There was war in heaven; angels were engaged in the battle. Satan wished to conquer the Son of God and those who were submissive to His will. You see, that's that's where we play in, right? If we're submissive to Christ, this is who He's warring against. Isn't that what Revelation twelve seventeen says? that the dragon was wroth with the woman that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Well, this isn't anything new. In heaven, he did the same thing. If loyal angels remain loyal to Jesus, 
they were, they were, they were labeled, right? The exaltation of the Son of God. Let's see. Let's see. Satan wished to conquer the Son of God and those who were submissive to his will. Lucifer allowed, that's interesting, he allowed his jealousy of Christ to prevail. In other words, he didn't have to allow it. You see that? There was a moment where he had a chance to say, you know, I've gone too far, I'm going to go back to the Father, the problem's with me. But he gave in. How much do you think that's going to play into the end of time? Jealousy and, and power. People, what do we usually do when we're tempted? I mean, it's not a good question to ask the church, but it's, well, we give in. In the world, people just give in. It's just easier to give in than to fight the battle. But this is where the difference is. Those who are going to make it, engage in the battle. Those who are not going to make it, kind of give up in the battle. They just say, you know, I don't have to keep the commandments anyway. You know, you know, everything's gray. So here, Lucifer allowed his jealousy of Christ to prevail. And that's what happened to him. He, and became the more determined. Do you see a principle there? When you allow these things to fester, it just makes us more that way. And as he started working against Christ and he allowed his jealousy to prevail, he hated Jesus all the more. Isn't that what happens in relationships? The exaltation of the Son of God as equal to the Father was represented as an injustice to Lucifer, who it was claimed was also entitled to reverence and honor. Well, see, that's false. Isn't that right? That's a false statement. Lucifer's envy and misrepresentation and his claims to equality with Christ had been made necessary, had made necessary a statement of the true position of the Son of God. The preference shown to Christ, he, Satan, declared as an act of injustice to himself and to all the heavenly hosts and announced that he would no longer submit to this invasion of his rights and theirs. He would never again acknowledge the supremacy of Christ, yet the Son of God was the acknowledged sovereign of heaven, one in power and authority with the Father. So what seemed to happen up there was that Lucifer became jealous of Jesus Jesus, and somehow in Lucifer's now distorted mind, saw Jesus as not equal to the Father, could still watch Jesus go into the councils with the Father, becomes, Jesus, becomes jealous, allows his jealousy just to become, become all the more determined that he belonged to the point that he was saying things that simply weren't true, that, that he had an equality. There's a statement in here um, about the true position of the Son. So, when this breaks out into the angels, it says that it, um, it was necessary for a position. So the father, Ellen White talks about how the father comes out and explains to all the angelic hosts about the true position of his son, how his son is equal to himself. Nobody had even questioned that up to this point. But now the question had been raised. Okay, And Lucifer planted some seeds of things that weren't true. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No. 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 
he, he served faithfully for the time of his creation. We, I can only assume that Lucifer was one of the first things God created. And if that were true, how far back does that go? It'd be incomprehensible for us. And so when you start thinking in terms of trillions of years, it's a why now? Why now question this after all this? So we know that this isn't Lucifer just got created yesterday. Now he's kind of wondering about all this authority. No, I mean, he'd been alive for at least millions and billions of years, right? And uh, so... But you raise a great question, and that is, I think, part of this fall in nature of Lucifer in humanity is a concept that I'm entitled to. Right. No, it's, it's the concept that I'm entitled to. Um, everybody's entitled to what? Yeah. Right. Everybody is entitled to be treated with kindness because they were created in God's image, if for no other reason. Saul of Tarsus was persecuting the church. Now you might say he wasn't entitled to anything, but how was he going to win him to the truth? Yeah, it doesn't mean you're going to send him candy on his birthday or something, right, for doing this. It just means that he's still entitled. I mean, if Jesus doesn't give a railing accusation to Lucifer, then we shouldn't either. You see what I'm saying? That even when we are being persecuted in the end of time, and there's still an opportunity to win our persecutor to the truth, do we do that, or what are we going to do? I mean, ultimately, we still have to see that people are winnable. Because as soon as we don't see people's winnable, we won't try to win them. Right? Everybody's winnable. We just don't know. We're just so finite. All we can do is try to be... I mean, look at how Jesus treated his persecutors. Father, forgive them for they, you know, know not what they do. Outside of that, no, not nobody's entitled to a certain amount of money. No one's entitled to a certain amount of property. No one's entitled to a certain position in society. Because no one's entitled to it means that that means that everything Lucifer had was given to him. And so, for him in his mind to come to a point and say, "But I'm entitled to this," tells you that there was some something not going right in his mental process. And I, and I think in some ways, sometimes Christians leave the Christian faith because if you become a Christian, we may get this idea that I'm entitled not to have to suffer anything. Is that possible? Yes, go ahead. Unwinnable, you say? 
Well, if there was someone, it wouldn't be our ability to read the heart, you see. Um, God knows, so the demoniac becomes a disciple of Jesus or becomes his first missionary. Uh, which Jew would have thought the woman at the well, a Samaritan would, you know, uh, or uh, Zacchaeus. or um, And sometimes the people least likely can become the greatest witnesses. Um, yeah. God knows, but the thing is God is love, so even he would never stop the rain and the sunshine for shining on people that he knows will still never accept it. Because it's simply his nature. His nature is that he has to give everybody an equal opportunity. Because the judgment is really as much about God being judged as people. Because he's being judged by how he judges. And if the judgment would show that God did everything to reach this person, and they still chose not to accept the truth, God is considered just. But if the judgment showed that God wasn't very nice to this person, well, then you could say, well, the guy didn't have a chance. You know, he was treated different. And this, you know, so was there another thought or? Yes, Mike. Mm-hmm. We just don't know. Right. And once it started, there was no way of, uh, of defeating it. But, and it could have been here, but he, he just, he probably was here to stop it. And he would have done a lot of things to do that. And he didn't. So, um, it, it's something, a lot of things we don't understand. Right. We simply don't understand how all this developed. And, and, uh, and, uh, that's why I say that God is giving a great Justifying his punishment for his wickedness, he's allowing it to ripen, to go through the evil for 2,000 years, and then he's going to direct everybody again a thousand years just to show that there's nothing else that could be done to to uh, to, to save us. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. And we're told that if they survive, that sin arose in Lucifer. So the rich, God didn't create sin. Right. Sin is a, a book or something. Yeah. It originated, but even Lucifer had a choice. Right. It goes to show you, he had a choice whether to fully let the sin yeah. mature right. when they would pay attention to it. That's right. Yeah, he'd come to a point where he realized he was wrong, but his pride got in a way, we're told. He, he made a decision. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he had a choice. Well, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, um, my understanding is it's not a particular sin other than the unwillingness to be forgiven. You know, to think of the worst sin I could commit. I could still be forgiven for it. But if I refuse to be forgiven... 
Right. Like yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think the reason to kind of look at this is that um, these this behavior is going to be repeated because at the beginning of our study, the first and second beasts are exemplifying the very spirit of Lucifer himself. What is in Lucifer is going to be in them which is the purpose of why we want to look at what happened to him to try to understand what's happening to our world. You know, why are they doing this? And a lot of it's going to be pride. When some of these pastors and legislators put their name on the Sunday law, which is tragic, how much will pride come in? How many of those who put their name on this bill would admit that they're wrong? It's not likely, is it? because they put their name on it, because they made such a public demonstration of it, which is exactly what happened to Lucifer. He had made such a public display that he'd have to admit that he was wrong to all these angels, and that's why he actually didn't repent. Okay. Well, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, isn't that what the whole gospel's about? Is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? So if you if you sin and signing the law, repent of it, you know, before it's too late. And hopefully some will, you know, we can only hope that. But it, it just seems like when the religious leaders are the one pressuring the lawmakers, that they're some of these lawmakers say, Well, they pressure me, I want to get reelected, right? But it's these apostate Protestants are going to pressure them to do this, all these religious leaders as a whole. Um, so at the beginning, as you've been saying, the Bible says, Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, I have set thee so. Uh, that means Satan didn't create himself, right? He was set that way. Thou was upon the holy mountain of God. He'd seen about everything a created being could know about God, he knew. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. I mean, you're right in my presence. Lucifer was anointed or consecrated to stand in the light of God's presence. His ministry covereth or extendeth across the angelic host. And that's how I kind of understand that word covereth. He's anointing cherub that covereth or extendeth. His position was great. I think he was the highest of the archangels, right? Lucifer would have served the Father and the Son for trillions of years. But the reason the word covereth or extendeth is that God had given him abilities to lead the angels to worship God. That was the reason for his abilities. But what we're going to find is he would take those same abilities to get people to worship him. You see, his abilities came from God. And so people do that all the time in our world. They get abilities from God, but use them for wrong purposes, right? Um. The Bible says, Thou wast perfected in thy ways from the day that thou wast created, till iniquity was found in thee, uh, by the multitude of thy merchandise. Okay, and this is where we're going to get into this. They have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God. I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. So Lucifer is created perfect from the beginning, and the key words in that sentence are, or passage, is iniquity, Multitude of merchandise, violence, profane, mountain of God. 
So when you kind of put all that together, Lucifer became violent in his thinking. And that ultimately is really true. He really did become violent in his thinking. This wasn't like he just barely missed the mark. He became violent in his thinking as he showed irreverence or contempt for God and used all his resources for his own personal advantage to be worshipped as God. So God had given him all this ability to lead the whole angelic realm to worship God. I mean, all around the universe. But then he used his merchandise, he used all his assets to focus on himself. Now, that's not going to be any different than human beings who God has blessed with great assets who only use it for, you know, instead of helping further the work, right? I mean, it wouldn't be any different, right? I mean, ultimately, those assets really belong to who? Actually belong to God. It all belongs to him. And this is where we have to really um, be in tune with God about everything we do. Because ultimately, God created everything. He owns everything. He actually owns us. And so, um, but this is where Satan gets into this concept of sinful independence from God as if you could exist without God. As if you don't owe anything to God. But the reason we keep the Sabbath is because the Sabbath proves that we believe that we, we belong to God. That he owns us. When we refuse to keep the Sabbath and keep a man's day, we're basically saying, God, you don't own me. I'm my own God, I'm my own man, and I can live independent from you. So when we proclaim the Sabbath more fully, we're saying, friends, Jesus owns you twice. Creation, redemption. You don't own yourself. Life is a gift. Eternal life's a gift. You don't own this life. You were given this. You don't even own your children. They're a gift from God, right? So if we have any talents, if you have the ability to, you know, heal people, what, who, what, how are you going to do it? You do it God's way, right? You're going to do it to the glory of God. You wouldn't do it to draw attention to yourself. These are why you have these talents. You can see where our world really does think like Satan, doesn't it? The more you kind of look into what happened to him, this is the thinking of the world. This is mine. It doesn't belong to God. It's mine. The Bible says, Thy heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. So, you know, there's, it's a mystery why it ever happened. But corrupted thy wisdom. In other words, Lucifer put to naught. That's the word corrupted here. He stifled his wisdom. He, he became less wise. By attributing all his beauty to himself, he actually began to corrupt his thinking processes. Okay? I mean, think of how warped people are who want the whole world to worship them. I mean, look, think of Hitler. Right? Think of some of these people who tried to have the whole world for themselves. Think of the way these people think. It's terrible, isn't it? It, it warps their, their thinking. Uh, so he lessened his, or corrupted his reasoning abilities by his conceit. Uh, so, when, so when these religious leaders pass a Sunday law, will there be any conceit in it? Look what we've done. Right? It's going to mess up their thinking. 
That's tragic, and they probably aren't going to think that. But it is. It's going to mess up their thinking. When you start saying people ought to be punished because they worship on a different day, can't buy and sell, you just lost a lot of wisdom. You lost a lot of potential intellectual ability. And this is why when we believe in things like liberty of conscience, if you believe in individual accountability, liberty of conscience, did you just make yourself smarter? You did, didn't you? Did you just make yourself more capable of understanding truth? You see, you ennobled your mind. But you ennobled your mind because you had a right concept. Satan started adopting wrong concepts and he ruined his thinking process. Okay? Uh, he thought he reasoned his worth uh, worthy of worship because of his beauty and his brightness. Okay? Well, where it had had him was he was the highest of the angelic world. I mean, he actually couldn't be any higher than what he was. Yeah, no. It's like Ellen White said, next in authority of the Father is Jesus, and next in authority to Jesus is, or was, Lucifer. Now, this is, ultimately, I guess we can boil this down into it's not safe to have wrong concepts. It's just not safe to have wrong thinking because you have no idea where it's, and this is why you really want to study truth, right? And we can all be so thankful to God that he led us to this church that we're not caught up into the secret rapture, we're not caught up into this, we're not caught up, because that messes with your thinking. And your whole concept of end-time events, right? And that's where you're trying to reach people who have these concepts. Um, and so the, ultimately, the only way we could reach them is just the truth that God tells us to preach. A person who carries himself... And so, so ultimately, Lucifer wound up with a mental disorder. Okay, It's narcissism. And, and, and it's not hard to, to look at that because we know what narcissism is. Um, when... I shall sit upon the throne of God. I, I, I. It's all about himself, right? So I want to just go through quickly some of the characteristics of this narcissistic personality disorder. A person who carries himself with dignity, that would be the opposite of what Satan is doing, does not tie his self-image to positions, possessions, or accomplishments. For trillions of years, Lucifer performed his office with dignity, Right? In fact, everybody did. It didn't bother them that they weren't the highest angel, right? They didn't tie their self-image to their position. And we, can't, we shouldn't do that either. You shouldn't feel like you're more loved of God if you're on the board, right? It doesn't matter if you're a board member or this. Or that. God loves you because Jesus what? He died for you. And the Holy Spirit eagerly is reaching your heart. You're eagerly loved of God. It has, has nothing to do with positions. Lucifer became prideful of his beauty and his brightness, that his position and prestige began to dictate his self-image. And so, and the reason we say is because we know things about narcissism, that somehow he allowed his beauty and his brightness, which you could almost equate to his position of power, his abilities. And this is what eventually gave him, instead of having his self-worth based on 
I am so loved of God. I am so privileged to be in the presence of God. His self-worth somehow switched into looking at his own beauty. My self-worth is how beautiful I am and the abilities that I have. So that was, he probably didn't know he was doing this, but I think ultimately that's what he was doing. Yes, Mike? So much pride in himself that there's nothing else. There's no way of turning back at all. Yeah. And there's nobody that can permit that because yeah. everything that had been said to him, that's why the crazy argument, everything that had been said to him was said a long time ago, there was nothing else to be said. To be said. Yeah. So uh, that's the way that evil works. Once this narcissistic mental health problem of, once he became narcissistic, that everything was about himself, his self-image was based on his position, people who are narcissistic generally are never satisfied. Okay? Uh, They want to change everything. They want to change it, and that's exactly what Lucifer did. He was saying, I've got a better plan, governmentally, and the only reason he said that is because he's now become narcissistic. Before he became narcissistic, God's plan was perfect in his mind. And the more he pushed for change is evident that he became even more narcissistic. Does that make sense? So he didn't start off with 100% narcissism. It started with 1%. I, me. But the more everything was about himself the more he advocated change. That he could never be satisfied. He created within himself a dissatisfaction for God's kingdom. Yes? We're going to get into that. That's part of narcissism. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Gregory. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think at this point, his mental health, he's not going to change. It's, 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 his mental capacity is driving this. He is simply this, you know. Um, yeah. 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 Yes. And even in the end, when um, 
Yeah. So how's this play out in the end of time? How many religious leaders' self-worth is based on their positions? That's pretty scary, isn't it? If, if you're in a position of ministry, you should only be there, you should be mentally thinking, I'm just here to serve. Yeah. Yeah. Your self-worth is not based on you being a pastor or the right reverend or the pope. Okay? These guys will, as L.Y. said, with superhuman effort, these religious leaders, they will feel like, who are you to despise my position as pastor of the whatever, or the right reverend of this, or the priest of this parish? And you see, their self-worth is based on it, but now this is where they get into this mental health thing. It becomes, the longer they stay in this, they become narcissistic. And, uh, and they, they want to change. They can feel, they say, we've got to get... Everybody going to church on Sunday. This is the plan. They're not satisfied with separation of church and state. And they're just going to push this and push this. But realize that as we go through this, they are savable. But they have a mental health problem. Which in part, if for many of them, is going to be narcissism. Yes. One of the best ways to help an extremely narcissistic person is to do something self-sacrificing in front of them. <laughs> Which is exactly what God's people are going to wind up doing. Your willingness to take a stand for truth, though it costs you your life, is probably going to be the only means of helping these people who are so narcissistic they are pushing all this. Isn't that interesting? This is why... Maybe we're still here, that God's still trying to save the people who are going to be behind this because they have a chance to come out. But if we're going to do an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, you know, we're just going to be battling with them. We have to give them the perfect demonstration of love. Isn't that right? It ultimately is going to be their only hope to help this, this mental, mental disorder. A dignified person can admit when he's wrong, but a prideful person rarely admits that he's in the wrong. Right. It was Lucifer's pride that kept him from admitting that God was right. Mm-hmm. We're going to see this in a big way in the end of time, right? Unfortunately. Those with dignity work with others. They think in terms of working cooperatively. We're to cooperate with divine agencies to become more like Jesus. So First Corinthians says we're to give the greatest honor to the comely parts in the body of Christ. Um, But the prideful man often works against others. He tends to put other people down. He is often defensive and dictatorial. So Lucifer created division amongst the angels and called the loyal angels deluded slaves. So that's kind of what you're getting at, Ron, Ron, right? Um, Oh, okay. You're not going to steal my thunder here? Okay. There's a dignified man right there. (laughs) Workability. How about that? The dignified person is accurate in his assessment of a well-done project or accomplishment. He will see things as a team effort and acknowledge the benefits he received from others. 
The prideful man often exaggerates his accomplishments. He makes distorted claims about what he has done and what he can accomplish. This is just textbook what happens when a person's a narcissist. So Lucifer says, I could sit upon <laughs> his... Uh, is that a, kind of an exaggerated thing, um, distorted? You know, when you, when you start thinking about what he was saying, when he first started this, I don't think he was thinking that he was going to be like God. He just started off being jealous of Jesus. He was just thinking he wanted to sit in the councils of God. But the more narcissistic he became, the more likely he was saying... I could be God. Yeah. An exaggeration without a doubt, yes. <laughs> no, <that's good. laughs> yeah, yeah, good. Absolutely. So when the disciples, and this gets back to the previous point, when the disciples were arguing who's going to be the greatest, what did Jesus do? He washed their feet. He did something that none of them would consider doing for another person or to one another. So Jesus gave them an example of servanthood, and Ellen White says they never argued about that ever again. Isn't that interesting? And this is why I was saying earlier that the, the way to reach this narcissistic mental, mental health problem is to do something that's sacrificial. Don't I mean, don't throw yourself in front of a bus, but I'm just saying, you know, don't have a martyr's complex, but you're willing, whatever the cost, right? Whatever the cost. The dignified man can admit when a challenge is beyond his skill level, he will work towards becoming more competent while reaching out to others and accomplishing things bigger than himself. Amen. The narcissistic man will attempt to do things beyond his capabilities, like pretend you're God, right? He's motivated to do this because he craves the adulation of others. Isn't that what Lucifer was doing? Yes. Hence, Lucifer attempts to do something that no other created being ever attempted to do in the past. Namely, he would aspire to be equal with God. Why? So that he can be worshipped as God. Isn't that what this is all about? Amen. Can you imagine how tragic it is to lose billions of people? Billions of people in the end of time are going to lose their lives just because he wants to be worshipped. That's the real problem with this narcissism, okay? The dignified man does not covet success for himself, but truly rejoices in the success of others. Amen. A high value is placed on all human life. Jesus died for, for all. In the narcissist world, people are viewed more as assets or liabilities. Who are my core group of supporters? Decisions are made to profit themselves. Satan doesn't care about the human family. He only sees them as potential loyal subjects to worship him. Is that true? Amen. Yeah. It's a, it's a real mental health condition. So, The Bible says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thy heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation and the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. He didn't start there. But in his thinking, he wound up there. Did you want to share now, or did you? you want me to share? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. The only thing was, 
Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah. Right. No, go God, ahead. Yeah. God's law is freedom. Yeah. It's freedom, and people got it wrong. And you, know, and, and you were talking about the Luciferian. That's their saying, too. There's a saying in the Luciferian circles of here is the whole, here is the whole, here is whole of the law. Do it thou will. Yeah. That's what they say. Do it thou will. True freedom. And that's what Satan is. Yeah. But the truth is, there would be no freedom if it wasn't the law. You could go outside and somebody just rob you because there was no law to come and put in there, kill you, take your shoes. Right. And that's what this battle is over the law. It is. It's amazing. Yeah. And so you got the Christian world out there saying, well, the law was nailed to the cross. It was done away with. Well, that's what it's Luciferian. That's not what, that's not true at all. Right. You know, so it's completely opposite. And then it comes down to the Sabbath, which again is the law. You know, it's amazing. The real flaw of Lucifer's argument there is the fact that he had lived for, we don't know how long, but at least millions of years, right? I mean, how could he have been the highest created being and not have been created at least a million years ago? So he would have kept God's law and been happy for a million years. And then all of a sudden he's not happy? Nobody can keep it? You just kept it for a million years? Nobody can keep it? It's, you know, that's, it's the flaw. Yeah. Yeah. And the other, and the other flaw of their argument is now you have to keep Sunday. I mean, this is so contradictory. I mean, it's just like, uh, so if you want to get God's good graces, now you got to all keep Sunday, but you didn't have to keep the law to begin with, and it's just, it doesn't. And this is what's happening to the mind. It they, it's not rational. 
And Satan's not rational now. Uh, that, that's, he's lost that a while back. Uh, but he's still very smart and very deceptive. Right. He uses his, his intelligence for deception. So when God said to his son, let us make man in our image, Satan was jealous of Jesus. Isn't that an interesting statement? Uh, he wished to be consulted concerning the formation of man. That would be us. And because he was not, he was filled with envy, jealousy, and hatred. He desired to receive the highest honors in heaven next to God. Wow, that, it seems like his, his rebellion was right around the discussion of the creation of man. Not that man had been created yet, but the concept of God coming together and talking about the creation of this new world and Satan himself was not included. And he became, but he became enraged then because it had already been starting in his heart, right? Okay. But this might be, wow. I think he would have always hated us even if Adam and Eve didn't fall. Because it seems like we are in part the reason he becomes jealous of Jesus was the creation of our race. And why was that? Go ahead. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Sister White says, and I don't know if I have the slide up, we were a unique part of God's creation. And, and not because we're different than fish or, you know, you know, elephants, but amongst the intelligent beings of the universe. We may be the only one that procreates. Okay? But there's a way God created us in his image that Lucifer hated us, okay? And so, anyway. In this, this statement, the fact that he was filled with envy, jealousy, and hatred would alone disqualify him from sitting in the councils with God to be consulted in the creation of any form of life. It is amazing that he would not have recognized this simple fact. You know, he's angry, he's jealous, because he can't sit in the councils. And it's like, well, hello? This is exactly why you can't sit in the councils. Because you're so envious and so jealous and so hateful. It's exactly why you can't be there. But he couldn't see that. Yes? What does he know about creating human beings? He wouldn't. And I, I think the answer is, I think the answer is not because he knows how to create, because he doesn't. It's because he wants to be worshipped. And ultimately, this is really what's behind the Sunday law, I think. Uh, is, is the mark of the beast is about the worship of the beast, isn't it? And the worship of the image of the beast. This whole thing is about worship and people's pride and the desire to be worshipped and have a name. Isn't that what the papacy is all about? And isn't that about all these apostate religious leaders? Isn't this really more about power and worship for themselves? Is this really about honor for Christ? I mean, can I really in my thinking think, you know, I want to honor Jesus by preventing women and children from being able to buy and sell food. That's a warped way of thinking. How do you, you don't honor Jesus by saying stuff like that. What you're doing is trying to honor the power you think you deserve to have. Right? The Bible says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. 
And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall now eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Why did Lucifer disguise himself to Eve as a talking serpent? If he came as a... Huh? Go ahead. No, if he came as an angel, then she might have suspected that he was the fallen angel named Lucifer, right? I mean, Adam and Eve were forewarned of this fallen angel. So if he had come as an angel, they may have suspected it was him. He wanted to attract her to the tree that she might have disobeyed God and partaken of the fruit. That, that ultimately is his goal, yes. And to, and to make her think that God was withholding Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, Mike. Absolutely. And that's a really good example because you're not going to win. Yeah. And uh, so why, what's the point? Just stay out of it and don't, don't bother with it. Well, when I, and I think I've shared this when I was in uh, Brazil doing an evangelistic series and this guy was demon-possessed. Mm-hmm. And that we just remained praying to God. Mm-hmm. I had no interest in trying to dialogue this guy where demons were speaking through him. Right. right? That's, just, that's just a no-no. You just... You don't engage in conversations with demons. Um, You just continue to pray to God for that man's deliverance. Now, resting in the rich laden branches of the forbidden tree and regaling itself with the delicious fruit, it was an object to arrest the attention and delight of the eyes of the beholder. So the reason he does this thing with the serpent and goes through this tree as if he's so happy. I mean, he is in the tree, this forbidden tree, but he's so happy and he's so beautiful, and da-da-da-da-da, and of course has the fruit, and da-da, and um, it's to arrest her attention. And that's what the devil's going to try to do to people in the end of time. Anything in Revelation 13 to arrest people's attention? Fire comes down out of heaven. All the false miracles. You know, people, people are going to be arrested when they see stuff like this. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, Mike. If they don't convince you uh, in that way, they'll wait until they'll tell you. Until oh, sure. To, uh, to keep up with what they want to see. They're waiting. So it's, it's either you do it in a nice way or, or you, uh, you won't be forced to do it. Yeah. She questioned with herself, within herself, she wasn't speaking out loud, with herself why God had withheld it from them. So he kind of accomplished what he was set out to do. Now was the tempter's opportunity, as if he were able to discern the workings of her mind. He couldn't, but he's guessing. By just looking at the expression of her face, he said, I kind of think she's probably thinking this. He addressed her. So he did, he did what he thought he could. He could arrest her attention to start questioning why God had withheld this, thinking that she may be thinking this, then he, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord had made, and said unto the woman, Yea, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Eve was surprised and startled as she was thus seemed to hear the echo of her thoughts. Now, 
Satan can't read your thoughts. But he can read, he knows your history. He knows what you've said, which is a result of your thoughts. And he can look at your thoughts. You know, they do this in football. They almost can figure out what play you're going to run. Depending on how, if it's a pass play, one of the defensive guys might have two fingers down when he's sitting down here to block. But if it's a run play, he may have his fist down. They look at every little mannerism to figure out what the play is. Because usually one of the players is going to give some key away when they run that certain play. <laughs> so if football does that, what do you think the devil's doing? Wow. No, that's my thought. That's, my, that's my, what I'm saying. He can't read your thoughts. He can read your actions. She thought that it seemed as if he, he could hear the echo of her thoughts. She thought that maybe he could read her thoughts. What he was hoping was to do something that might get her to question why God withheld it and then say it. Okay? But the serpent continued in a musical voice. Is there a reason for that? With subtle praise of her surpass. Oh, Eve, you are so beautiful. You are so beautiful. And so smart, you know. And her words were not displeasing. And his words were not displeasing what? Instead of fleeing from the spot, she lingered wondering to hear a serpent talk. Do you think she liked to hear how beautiful she was again? Yeah? That, that attracted her to keep listening. What was that again? You know? So, so far, Satan arrested her attention. He got her attention. Influenced her curiosity concerning the truth. He did that. Deceived her to believe the serpent could speak as a result of the fruit. Won her trust with compliments. He was viewed as a friend, not an enemy. He was not just a talking serpent, but a wise one at that. She thought the serpent might even be able to read her thoughts. That's what we've read so far, right? How do you think this could play out in the end of time? Same way, man. Yep. Um, that's why Jesus said to Satan, you just listen. Yeah. And he didn't, I don't know what that means to analyze it, he didn't go uh, into details, he just listened, that's it. If Jesus came to Satan and said, well, he wasn't said that, but he was said to her, don't do this, mm-hmm. leave, the, leave the area, go, go somewhere else. Yeah. She could have. If she had left and said, hey, I, I, I'm not engaging here. Um, there's something not right here. Yeah, she wouldn't have fallen if she had left the scene. The thing is, is that um, Satan knew how the human mind worked, even in these early stages, right? He's quite, quite a master psychologist here. Um, So did we read that one? Yeah. The serpent said, For God don't know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened. You shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. The serpent, this gets back to kind of Ron's point too, the serpent insinuated that God was intentionally keeping something good from them. This is So he makes as if he's a friend, and then makes it as if God is doing something wrong. The serpent insinuated that God was lying about the penalty of eating the forbidden fruit because, after all, he's now a talking serpent and he's not dead, right? She begins to believe that the serpent is her friend. 
change of loyalties. This is an important issue. The devil's going to try to get you to change loyalties in the end of time. There's going to be a lot of nice people from some of these other churches going to come into your life. And they're going to offer you a lot of things about what you can do and how smart you are and how wonderful a person you are. To win your loyalties if they're your friend. Okay? Watch out. That the serpent has ascended to become wiser than her. I mean, she knew that Adam and Eve, they were, had dominion over the earth. But she, was, she knew she wasn't as smart as a serpent right now. That God has withheld something good from her. That God has actually lied to her. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if, hey, if I can be smarter than you now, then you, if you eat it, wow, you'll be as the gods. Yeah. That, that's a key word we'll get to, mesmerize. Satan would now lead her to take the fruit on her own. And this is, I think this is an important thing. He wanted to make sure she didn't leave. He wanted to make sure that she made a decision by herself. And that's going to happen to you in the end of time. Things are going to push so you don't get counsel from one another. Satan knew that if she would have prayed to God for counsel, she would not have fallen. Is this true? He didn't even want her to pray. He knew that if she went to Adam for advice, she would not have fallen. Yeah? The essence of sin and rebellion against God is to act independent of God. That ultimately is... There's a book, do you know the name Marshall Grossball? He wrote a book called Sinful Independence. I don't actually remember what it was in, I just remember the title. But it, was, it was a perfect title, you know, Sinful Independence. Because what's right is dependence on God. Sin is ultimately acting independent of God. Leaving his place in the immediate presence of God, Lucifer went forth to diffuse the spirit of discontent among the angels, working with mysterious secrecy and for a time concealing his real purpose under an appearance of reverence for God. He endeavored to excite dissatisfaction concerning the laws that govern heavenly beings, intimating that they imposed an unnecessary restraint. Since their natures were holy, he urged that the angels should, be, should obey the dictates of their own will. He sought to create a sympathy for himself by representing that God had dealt unjustly with him in bestowing supreme honor upon Christ. So those seem like two completely different issues, but he combined them, didn't he? That somehow God has a law, but if you're a holy angel, how could you do anything unholy? If you are by nature a holy angel, everything you would decide to do on your own would be holy. And then to, to bridge that with how it wasn't, right that Jesus had privileges that he didn't. Ultimately, those two have nothing to do with each other. But that's the way some of these arguments are going to work in the end of time. And the Lord said unto the woman, What is it that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. The Hebrew word for beguile is nasha. It's a rare Hebrew word with a primitive root to lead astray. That is, mentally to delude or morally to seduce. To do so utterly. That's the meaning of the word. Eve was experiencing some emotional, psychological, spiritual trauma. She was confused, yes. Um, 
Yep. I think so. Yeah, I think last day events will be rapid ones is something Satan himself wants to push to give people less time to think about how they're deciding, right? That it becomes impulsive. And I think that's what he's been conditioned for even in the, the, the grocery stores, to be impulsive people, right? I mean, he's trying to destroy the human character to make wrong decisions in the end of time, right? I mean, he's just not bringing on the end of time. He's preparing people's mentally for the end of time to make the wrong decisions. Um, and I say, lest any man should beguile you. Here's that word, beguile you, with enticing words, Colossians. The word here in the Greek, beguile, is paralogizomai, meaning to miscalculate, to be imposed upon. It refers particularly to being beguiled by mere probability. Embedded in this world is the word logic. You have paralogizomai, right? See, logic right in the middle. Satan was using twisted logic to get Eve to make a fatal miscalculation. So, if you mix truth and error, you're eventually going to get people to make a miscalculation, right? And if you push them to do it quickly, they're even less, more likely to make a wrong decision. This is why people need to have truth, right? So they don't make any miscalculations, they're making all the right calculations. But the devil's got all this misinformation out there. So, so the serpent was essentially saying, God said you would die, but you will not die. I've eaten the fruit and I'm not dead. If I gain the power of speech, you will be as the gods. God is withholding this great gift from you. The solution is yours and it's easy. And it's so easy. And Eve was confused and based on the false information she had, she made a miscalculation. Yeah. And it's a really good point because we have something in our church we call the pillars of our faith. That we would call those the majors and there's minors. We believe in immersion by baptism, but it's not a major. It's an important doctrine, but it's not in the same category as what happens when a person dies. Or the sanctuary, or the Sabbath, or the law of God. And so the, the, and so the doctrines I think we need to be covering are the essentials. So as not to be deceived. You know, on this side of heaven, we're never going to know everything. But we need to know the essentials. We need to know the pillars. Because those pillars is what's going to keep us from making these fatal miscalculations. I mean, every day we may make a miscalculation in driving our car or something like that. You know what I'm saying? But not to make a miscalculation when it comes to our allegiance to God. Okay? And how we think about God. 
So the devil might say, you know, this has been going wrong for you, and this has been going wrong. You know, does God really love you? Does God really care? You see, these are the kinds of things the devil's trying to... And you've got to just be rock solid on, it doesn't matter what happens to me. I already know God loves me because... The Bible told me so, but Jesus has already died for me. Jesus is interceding for me. He never promised that I'd reach age 62. Or 63. I may not reach age 63. He never promised me that. What he's promised is eternal life. You know? And to daily. Yes. Let's see. Adam was not deceived, we're told. Adam enjoyed communion with God and holy angels, but he loved Eve more. She was a part of himself, and he could not endure the thought of being separated from her. Instead of going to God, he too decided to take things in his own hands. We'll never know exactly how God would have worked out this tragic situation, but we know that God is love and that his plan would have been the perfect plan. So it's just too bad that Adam just didn't trust God to take care of the situation. No, she brought the fruit to him. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I don't think it would have, they would have fallen. So he, that was the first bad mistake. Yeah. Yes, Mike. Well, I, I would assume that Eve repented as well and that they both will be in heaven. And um, so, but what people did, what she did write about them, was that people would always remind Adam of what he did. And so, so if someone had a bad day, they go see Adam. Well, it's because of you that, you know, I had a bad day, you know. And, uh, and they, they should have just been thankful that Adam repented, right? You know? Um, sin is disobedience to the law of God. The essence of this disobedience is by doubting the goodness of God, even just a little. Is that what? That's actually what caused all this. She had no reason to doubt God's love, right? We act as if we do not need God, though he keeps our hearts beating every second, causes the sun to rise, the plants to grow, and keeps the heavenly bodies in their perfect course. We take man too seriously as if he has the answers. We put more trust in the arm of flesh than in the creator and sustainer of the universe. And that ultimately is the essence of sin, is a distrust of God. Uh, Jesus, therefore, becomes our example and then says just the opposite. Instead of distrusting God, he says, I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. Or, for always I do those things that please him. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. The son could do nothing of himself but what he seeth the father do. Look at the contrast between Adam and Eve and Jesus here. 
Adam and Eve fell because they doubted God to some extent. Jesus was victorious in fallen flesh. Adam and Eve had perfect flesh and a perfect environment and doubted God just a little, and that caused sin. Jesus has fallen flesh. The key to his victories, he never questioned his father or his word or his direction or his love. Yeah, go ahead. So it wasn't enough that Jesus kept it. In God's wisdom, infinite wisdom, he says, before this whole thing ends, I can't just have an individual here and an individual here. I need a movement. I need a demonstration of a movement to keep the commandments by faith and believe in me. And no matter what happens to them, they'll make choices like Job did. That's probably why it was the first book written in the Bible. Yeah. Because whatever happened to Job, he maintained his fidelity to God. Even though he slay me, I will, I'll trust him. You see, friends, that is the faith of Jesus is to trust his Father. Right? Us having the faith of Jesus is to always trust God. Satan got to a point where he trusted only in his own wisdom. And he acted independent of God. And look what happened to him. Lucifer's an absolute lunatic. Right? He's a murderer. Where did all his independence from God get him? He's a liar and a murderer. The three temptations. This is how this is this is what allows us to have eternal life. Is Jesus' example. Jesus would always say, is what? It is written because he believed it, and that's what he lived by. Uh, it is written that man shall now live by bread alone, but every word. It is written that thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. It is written thou shalt, or it is said that it shall not tempt the Lord thy God. And this is how um, Satan knew that he wasn't going to be able to deceive Jesus. Um, so this is, I think we're okay here. We could end here. Huh? Jesus and the Father? <laughs> well, how can I deny a request like that? No, let's stick with a negative. Let's. Uh... <laughs> okay, if you need to go, it's okay. I understand. Okay, the positive. Jesus and the Father. First, these 12 verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was? And the Word was God. Does that tell you something different than what happened to Adam and Eve? They actually hid from God, didn't they? There actually was this independence from God, this distrust. But Jesus and the Father have, they've always been together. And that's what you want, right? 
You want to maintain that contact with the Father and the Son. This is the fellowship with God. Second, the Jesus Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. This is the right relationship. Lucifer got to a point, no, I just want to be my own God. I want to do my own thing. I don't need to keep your law. And Jesus says, no, that's just not what eternal life's about. I always do the things my father does. Huh? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am He, and that I do nothing to myself, but as the Father hath taught me, I speak these things. So these are just verses that go through the Gospel of John on the relationship of the Father and Son. I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. So the Father sent Jesus to die for our sins. And Jesus was the willing servant to come, right? He offered his life. No man cometh to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I'll raise him up at the last day. These are all very positive statements, aren't they? I have not a devil, but I honor my Father, and ye do dishonor me. So... um, Seventh, as the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. This is right thinking, you know. In the end of time, people will think they're doing God's will by taking your life, not laying down their life. Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If you love me, you will rejoice, because I said I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. So we're just putting up quotes through the Gospel of John here in order. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. This was something we just talked about at prayer meeting, where Jesus uh, says, the Father sent me to keep his commandments, and he sent me to die for you. He's just hours from this now. He says, let's go. This is why I came for. Let's go. And so we, we talked about at prayer meeting that in the end of time, when we see the Sunday law passed, we could say, this is why God raised us up for. Amen. Let's go. Let's proclaim the Sabbath more fully. Let's do it. That's why we're here. Amen. Right? It's the Father's will. Let's go. I love that. I came forth from the Father, and I'm come into the world again. I leave the world and go to the Father. Huh? What's that? Oh, did I? If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So these are verses of Jesus and the Father in the Gospel of John. Um, and my Father, if it be possible, if this cup pass from me, nevertheless not I will, but as thou wilt. That's Gospel of Matthew. And we ended on a positive. How about that? Who would have thunk, huh? <laughs> but... Um, I feel bad that Lucifer messed up. Yeah, I wish it had never happened. I wish a third of those angels never followed him. I wish the papacy had never caved in for political prowess and honor, worldly honor. And I feel bad that the Protestants have fallen in the same footsteps. But we have our marching orders. And Jesus is our example. We want to maintain contact with the Father, right? 
to the work of the Holy Spirit, do his will, because that's what life is. And, uh, and just have that same relationship with the Father as Jesus did. That we only want to do what he asks us to do, say what he tells us to say. And, uh, and life can really be that simple. We just need to spend time to know, to know him. Isn't that what eternal life is, John 17, 3? Yes. It's to know God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Um, we don't need to complicate it more than that. Amen. But we, we're sent here for a mission just like Jesus. Jesus says, I send you too. I was sent, now I'm sending you. And all you need to do is just always trust me. Right? Stay close to me, trust me. I love you. I'm going to take care of you. And even if you lose your life, I've promised you. That's a long time, friends. Even if he only promised us a thousand years, would you do it? Would you still follow him? Absolutely. (laughs) Eternal life. We have no idea. I mean, we have an inkling of what's before us, but beyond that, to visit other worlds. How many like to have a glorious new body? (laughs) See, the older folk got their hands up first. (laughs) I'm all with you. So, um, yeah. There will be special moments that will be unforgettable when you first get to the new Jerusalem. When you walk through the gates for the first time. When Jesus places a crown on your head. You'll never forget this for eternity. And I don't know how much we remember from this world, but enough to be able to share a testimony of what Jesus meant to us. We may not remember any specific sins, but only that it was only because of him that we made it. You know, I don't think the other worlds want to hear about our past sins. But they do want to hear about what a wonderful Savior Jesus was. Amen. You know, and, uh, and to be able to give that testimony for an eternity to, to parts of the universe we don't even know about right now, it'd be endless. And, uh, this is something we don't want to miss out on. Amen. And uh, we just can't practice sinful independence. Just don't take your own life into your own hands Amen. and forget God. Because that's what Lucifer did. And look where it got him. You know, I feel bad about that. But it's, it's all history, isn't it? Okay, any other closing thoughts before we pray? Okay, let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for the plan of salvation. We're sorrowful that Lucifer had ever fallen. What a glorious being he must have been. And a third of those angels, how happy they used to be. But Father, their lives must be absolutely miserable right now. To love human carnage is just a a terrible mental condition. So help us, Father, not to love the things that take away life but the things that bring forth life. The things that promote life. Kindness and love and healthful practices. Father, we help us to love these things. 
and to embrace them and to give you the glory for them. Help us, Father, as Sabbath keepers, to always remember that we are dependent upon you, that there will never come a time in our life that we'll be independent. So, Father, continue to show us your way through the life and teachings of your Son and help us each day to choose to follow. So, Father, we thank you for the measure of faith we have and that it will increase, that there will be a a lovely movement here in the end of time to give you the glory you deserve. In this we all pray in Jesus' name. Amen.